The natural world has its own sonic language, its own fingerprints. And that's one of the beautiful things actually about being out here. There is another acoustic environment, another sort of sonic fingerprint and always changing. And every day is a sort of a different sound picture. I walk out the door and you do hear it changing over time. You know, the leaves are coming in now, different kinds of the bird song. The wind sounds different. It's a wonderful thing to be around and to experience. We tend to say humans and animals, but really we're all animals. Biology 101 teaches us that. And people tend to say, oh, uh, such and such an animal share this human trait. They're not human traits. They're all shared traits because of course, we all love, we all love our families or not. Uh, we all grieve if somebody we love disappears or dies, a family dog, perhaps a grandfather. And um, we all feel loneliness. We all feel joy. We all really value our freedom. And so I think if anything, looking into the eyes of the animal, even online, you see a person in there. There's a someone in whatever the shape or the physical properties of that individual are. And that lesson is that I am you, you are me, only different. We are, we are all the same in all the ways that count. Any living being teaches you, look into my eyes and there you are. So I'm an explorer. I love the beauty of the world. I've seen fantastic things like the Delta of the Ganges River in the Gulf of Bengali during a moonlight. I've seen the deserts with the dunes, with the rocks and the sunrise with my solar powered airplane. I've flown above oceans where there were whales jumping in the water and the big bunches of dolphins when I was flying with solar impulse. It's beautiful, but it's not enough to motivate people. And don't forget one thing. What we are damaging is not the beauty of nature. What is damaging is the quality of life of human beings on Earth. Because we can still have beautiful things to see. But if we have a climate change, if we have tropical disease in Europe, if we have heat waves, floods, droughts, millions of climate refugees, life will be miserable even if nature is still beautiful. The living world is enormously enriching to human life. I think that was the first thing that I felt. I don't think I articulated it that way, but I just loved animals. I loved all the different things that he did, all the different ways they looked, how you can never know enough about them. They're always just totally fascinating. I think that was the first thing that I learned. And the only place in the universe where we have detected living things is this planet. Are there living things elsewhere among the billions and billions and billions of stars? Quite possibly, but life is at least extremely rare because everywhere people who've spent their careers looking for it, they have not found any. So we tend to take living for granted. I think that might be the biggest limitation of human intelligence is to not understand with awe and reverence and love that we live in a miracle that we are part of and that we have the ability to either nurture or destroy.
And that's something that I would want all of the next generations to have in some way or another, to have the ability to access and be amazed by how staggeringly beautiful, complicated, awful in some ways, and just brutal the natural world is. But then really sit and think about how the natural world just gets on and does it. It doesn't need interference from us. It doesn't need us to design particular space. It just does it. And I look out the window and there's trees that are just doing their thing without any interference from us whatsoever. And they're doing it in such a beautifully connected and inclusive way that they're supporting each other and every species is benefiting from everybody else. And you could remove humans from that equation and nature would just carry on doing its thing. So that's what I would love the people to see and to realise is that nature is so incredibly beautiful and diverse. And so are we. So how can we take the beauty and diversity of the natural world and actually learn a lot more and stop thinking we're separate from nature because we are all part of that same biosphere on the planet. Say tomorrow doesn't come. Say the moon becomes an icy pit. Say the sweet gum tree is petrified. Say the sun's a foul black tire fire. Say the owl's eyes are pinpricks. Say the raccoon's a hot tar stain. Say the shirt's plastic ditch litter. Say the kitchen's a cow's corpse. Say we never get to see it. Bright future, stuck like a bum star, never coming close, never dazzling. Say we never meet her, never him. Say we spend our last moments staring at each other, hands knotted together, clutching the dog, watching the sky burn. Say, it doesn't matter. Say, that would be enough. Say, you'd still want this. Us, alive, right here, feeling lucky. And so I always want to bring it back to like, what is it to hold scary, frightening, overwhelmingly terrifying thoughts within us, but then also have some seed of hopefulness, some seed of acceptance and surrender to that there can be beauty and maybe there's even more beauty now as we see it shifting and changing and maybe slipping away from us. are looking for a little magic in our lives and I think that's what art and the creative process allows for above all is that in a world that can be either way too predictable and mundane and create tedium the creative mind for myself is the curious mind the mind that's always learning and allowing yourself to uh, make mistakes but to generate from your your core from your soul and from your experience something new and experimental and something that is unique to yourself and it's so that it's like a daily gift you can give yourself which is why i practice every day and that's what the artistic and creative experience is for me so in a world that's either so 
impossible to control, such as political situations and world hunger and gargantuan spiritual malaise, which is what I believe this world is suffering from because we are way too identified with our animal nature and way too unidentified with our spiritual nature, which is what I believe is required as a transformation for this world to exist, is for us to become less selfish and more compassionate human beings or we're doomed. You know, it can be painful to stay awake or it can be revelation to become awake, which is why people are learning how to meditate and why that's coming into schools, because there's an awakening to yourself and to the goodness and possibility in this world. So education is very important to think about the, the journey of humanity as a whole. What ultimately trigger this new era of sustained economic growth and enormous prosperity in the human population is precisely investment in human capital and education. Now, as we move into the future and we face new challenges, and one of them is the challenge about the environment, education becomes instrumental in assuring that individuals understand the science behind climate change and, in addition, understand the impact of each individual on environmental degradation. And so you have pretty inadequate environment and climate literacy objectives and criteria that schools use, and not a single country in the world makes probably one of the most important skills you'll ever have, which is understanding the planet, a requirement to get out of high school. And so our campaign is focused on two levels. At the global level, we're focused on asking all the countries that are signatories to the climate agreement to agree to assessed compulsory environment and climate literacy education, as well as civic skill building. The reason why I became a scientist is because of my deep love for the natural world and living in a country like Australia, which is absolutely extraordinary. We have more unique plants and animals than anywhere on the planet. And so growing up in a place like that, really, I guess, infuses into your pores. I do move through these landscapes in a slightly different way to, say, other people who maybe don't have that training. But I guess it's my love of the natural world that keeps me going in this area. So I think it's fascinating, for example, that every single year, trees can actually put down this growth ring and that is responding to things like temperature and rainfall. So you can as long as that tree's been alive and some of these trees can grow up to 2,000 years, you can have this really long record of climate that extends back beyond the official weather records. Let's picture 20, 30 years into the future. Imagine we really did become circular. Would we be embedding this into children's upbringing? How would we be changing our, almost our moral view as well as the new mindsets and the new technologies? Well, first of all, maybe uh, being a little more concerned about global warming, but it's a huge task ahead because there is too much of everything, actually. I remember when I was young, going to the supermarket, there was only some small groceries. You could buy maybe uh, two or three types of yogurts. Now there is 300 types of yogurts. So the more we are producing and the more we are destroying the planet. And if you want to stay alive, we need to protect the planet. That's why Red Indian, they are calling it Mother Earth. I was originally drawn to bees because they're social creatures. And as humans, I always wanted to know about ourselves and how we can be our healthiest selves in our healthiest society bees and wasps and all of these organisms have been around for so long bees especially have been around for 100 million years 
I guess the work that we're doing here at the Climate Hazard Center is trying to build out the science to cope with a two-degree world. And I think that we can do that. It's not going to be easy, but I think that's definitely within our capabilities. And it, it is already making human beings be smarter together in very empowering ways. But thinking about how our actions play out over multiple generations, who will have to live with the consequence of these decisions? So I think we need to stretch our sense of time. And within that stretch our sense of empathy, we need a more elastic sense of empathy that can en encompass not just those close to us or living alongside us, but those who have yet to be born. Think of yourself as a tree. You've got neighbors that you live beside for hundreds, if not thousands of years, and none of you can move around. So you just have to communicate in other ways. And so trees have evolved to have these ways of communicating with each other. And they're sophisticated, they're nuanced. They include things like transmitting information through these root networks that link them together. They transmit information to each other through the air. So they perceive each other and they communicate and then they respond to each other. And that information, that language is complex and we don't even understand the full language. But what we do know is that they communicate by sharing information, resources, how well they're doing, how stressed out they might be, how healthy they are, what their identity is, their species, whether they're related or not. Living altruistically ought to be a part of our life, not the whole of our life. We don't expect people to be saints, but thinking about making the world a better place should be one of our objectives for everybody. And insofar as we do try to make the world a better place, we should use the resources that we can spare for that. Something like 74 billion animals we raise and kill each year on this planet. And if we can't make inroads into that and change attitudes to that, then I have fears for where we're going. It's so inspiring to be working with young people all around the world. And we are in the midst of transformational change and that working together around these kind of key moments where you can see those shifts happening, that's the unimaginable things that you never thought were going to happen can happen. So you need to think of this in your own resilience and not have despair if things don't go your way on a specific campaign or thing that you're trying, but know that it will come back. There will be another moment that you can have that win, that you can move things forward. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This podcast is created by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Max Richter's music featured in this episode was On the Nature of Daylight from the Blue Notebooks, Path 19, Yet the Frailest from Sleep. Music is courtesy of Max Richter, Universal Music Enterprises, and Mute Song. Associate producers on this episode were Sam Myers and Jamie Lammers. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.